Gosh Pods, paediatric educational podcast series from Great Ormond Street Hospital. Gosh Pods are brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. So welcome back to our Gosh Paediatric Educational Podcasts. My name is Sarah Warayic and today we're joined by Dr. Stephen Marks for the first of our Renal Podcasts. Welcome Dr. Marks. Hello, welcome, thank you. Would you like to tell us what you specialise in? So I'm a consultant paediatric nephrologist here at Great Ormond Street. I'm the clinical lead for kidney transplantation here. Um, and I'm a reader in paediatric nephrology at University College London and also the deputy director of our research facility. Great, welcome. So today we're going to be talking about acute kidney injury in paediatrics. So can we start by finding out what that actually means? So a lot of children and adults, of course, who present with acute kidney injury are managed locally and usually with general advice. So we changed the terminology from acute renal failure um, to acute kidney injury with patient and public involvement because the public don't like the word failure. Mm -hmm. So acute kidney injury, we mean a sudden decrease in uh, renal function, which is accompanied by the retention of nitrogenous waste products with a disturbance of water and electrolyte imbalance. An important thing is not only it being a sudden decline in the glomerular filtration rate, but it is potentially reversible. And when patients present, they may or may not have reduced urine output, what we call oliguria, or sometimes anuria, which literally means no urine. But of course, some patients will have bladder sweat, so they may have a little bit of what people think is urine coming out, but it's not effective. So do you have a case in mind that you can talk us through that will help us understand acute kidney injury a bit better? Yes. Why don't we talk about uh, a child that I saw recently who was a 15-year-old Afro-Caribbean boy. He presented with a one-week history of abdominal, leg and facial swelling with increased shortness of breath. Now, interestingly, he and his siblings had had a few viral infections with sore throat over the last uh, three winter months, which, of course, is quite common at that time of year. But he didn't have any known rash, uh, but he and his mother said he had reduced oral intake over the last 24 hours and his urine output had uh, reduced. So when he was first seen and assessed, he was unwell. His weight was on the 25th centile with a height on the 2nd centile. Um, He had a capillary refill time of 2 seconds with palpable peripheral pulses. Uh, Cardiovascular examination was otherwise unremarkable with a prominent apex beat but a blood pressure which was elevated at 152 over 94 millimetres of mercury. He was tachymneic at rest and he had evidence of lung crepitations in all areas with uh, evidence of generalised peripheral edema together with ascites. So obviously when that kind of patient first presents, it's obviously that he is quite unwell and needs urgent uh, management. And I think it's important to look at some of the features that he may have both in his examination, but also it's about going back and examining him over periods of time to see what has changed and then trying to put everything together by doing some investigations. Okay, so at this point, when we first encounter this patient, I think it's important to think about whether we're dealing with an acute kidney injury or a chronic kidney injury with an acute acute exacerbation. So for this patient, I note that the creatinine is high. Can you talk us through how we can differentiate between the two? Yes, it's a very important point that many patients, of course, whom it's the first time you see them, they may have a history which is suggestive of chronic kidney disease, 
which is the new terminology for chronic renal failure. Some patients will present with acute kidney injury. Some patients will have known chronic kidney disease with a deterioration in their kidney function, like one of the patients that I'm just trying to arrange admission for this evening. Or some patients will have had chronic kidney disease that was never diagnosed and they have an acute infection or exacerbation, such as an intercurrent viral infection or they've got a viral gastroenteritis where they're intravascularly dry and they have acute kidney injury on an undiagnosed chronic kidney disease. And then obviously you have patients who you might have had a blood test because of features of chronic kidney disease, or in fact, the first presentation may be end-stage kidney disease, where they require kidney replacement therapy with dialysis or transplantation. So when we talk about some of the features, it's good to go back to the principles of evaluation of a patient, so looking at the history, um, looking at examination features and looking together uh, with what investigations may suggest one or other. So if we pick on that case that we just discussed, then go through what we might do for that particular um, young adult. What might you suggest would be the next step? So I think the important things is to start are with looking at the history. So one important issue is actually knowing what's happened over the last 24 hours, try and quantify what the fluid input has been, how much has this child had to drink. Um, obviously, it's very different if they've drunk um, two or three litres as he was 15 years of age compared to someone who's not feeling well. And in fact, they've only had about 400 or 500 or even mils in the last 24 hours or even less. So I think we need to look at the full intake. And of course, if they've had a temperature, for example, then their fluid requirements will be elevated as well. So we'll start off by finding out what their input is, how much they've had to drink um, over the period of time, try and find out if they've had any additional losses. So if they've had fever, for example, assuming with this child there's no other losses such as um, diarrhea, vomiting or blood loss, which of course could happen in a, an acute trauma case. And then it's about going back and actually to the very beginning. So was there anything antenatally diagnosed? Was this child followed up postnatally? Was he born prematurely? Did he have normal kidney function? Has it ever been checked before? Um, looking at to see if there's any ingestion of drugs. And of course, a 15-year-old, it may be recreational drug use, but of course, it may be drugs prescribed or non-prescribed and thinking of nephrotoxic agents such as ibuprofen, for example, if he's had a fever or pain, has he been taking um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs? Or in fact, even uh, a cephalosporin, which can, of course, induce a tubulin nephritis in some patients. But obviously, in addition to this, um, some of the basic questions in a 15-year-old that you would think about is, what is his normal fluid input and uh, intake and output? So thinking about if there's a history of polyuria and polydipsia, is there a history of nocturia? or nocturnal enuresis. And uh, I've seen certainly over the years some adolescents who say that they drink normal volumes, but when you actually sit down with them, they've actually been carrying bottles of water around with them and actually they drink in the middle of the night and you add it all up and you're talking about four or five litres mm -hmm. because they've had undiagnosed chronic kidney disease. One of the other aspects to look at, of course, is the growth. And with this particular child, you remember that we said that his uh, weight was on the 25th centile and the height was on the 2nd centile. 
in this case, we also mentioned there was generalized edema and ascites, so it may be that he's got fluid overload, so that there's dry weight maybe on the second centile, so it may be appropriate. Of course, a height on the second centile may or may not be normal. What's his parental heights? What's the mid-parental height in that centile would be important to know as well. So I think this just leads me on to the examination. So as a candidate or somebody um, in a, sitting in exam or, or seeing this patient, what might we then be looking out for on examination? Well, I, I think if you were sitting a clinical exam, it'd be important to point out to the examiners that you'd want to know not only what the current anthropometric measurements were, but how they track. So looking at our growth chart over the years to see if there's faltering growth, has the height dropped in centiles um, over the years, if that was something that was important, but also looking at uh, his uh, clinically how he was, but also his pubertal development as well. The other things to look out for, obviously, would be any evidence of uh, rickets, renal osteodystrophy, for example, as well, would be important. Um, a rickety rosary would be important because obviously that would give you an indication potentially that it was chronic kidney disease, um, which had not been treated, for example, with secondary hyperparathyroidism. In this particular case, he's obviously acutely unwell, so it's uh, back to basics and APLS and uh, Powell's training and looking at uh, patient's airway, breathing, circulation, because if you remember, uh, there was uh, information that he was tachypneic, he had evidence of lung crepitations, so actually additional information would be to do an assessment of the intravascular volume status. The Kavili refill time was two seconds, is that central and peripheral? Um, how does he look clinically? Um, because obviously if he's got total body fluid overload, then you're wanting to offset that. So even if you are concerned about his intravascular status, if he's going into pulmonary edema, as suggested by the generalized edema, the ascites, the tachypneic and the lung crepitations, then you know the initial treatment would be fruzamide to try and offload mm -hmm. the fluid because you could be in a situation by giving additional fluid, you're going to precipitate more pulmonary edema and admission to intensive care unit requiring intubation and ventilation. So that's really useful. So that brings me on to um, what investigations we might need to consider um, for a patient who presents like this. Yeah, so why don't we talk about what his actual test showed when he came in. So um, initially we weren't able to get any urine sample, um, but after initial management he did produce some urine. And one of the simplest tests is actually to do a dipstick test on it. And in his case, it came back as showing four plus of proteinuria and two plus of hematuria. Mm -hmm. And in that case, especially, you would want to send it off for a urine albumin to creatinine ratio and or a urine protein to creatinine ratio, whatever your laboratory does. Um, initial blood tests would, of course, include a venous blood gas, um, including baseline electrolytes and uh, a blood sugar level. Um, but obviously sending off his blood for a full blood count. And in his case, his hemoglobin was 120 grams per litre with a white cell count of 12.3 and a platelet count of 325 times 10 to the power 9 per litre. So obviously, if you had a patient with chronic kidney disease, you may expect that they've got anemia of renal uh, disease by that stage. Um, obviously, if he's fluid overloaded, you may expect the hemoglobin to be a bit low, but obviously a hemoglobin of 120 is not low. Um, his serum electrolytes initially showed a sodium of 130, potassium of 7.2, chloride 108, bicarbonate of 14 millimoles per litre with a 
elevated urea of 24.8 millimoles per litre and a creatinine of 258 micromoles per litre, which is equivalent to 2.9 uh, milligrams per decimeter. So with the, this patient, there's obviously evidence of renal dysfunction. And as I said, trying to delineate whether this is acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease is really important. So some of the other features we would do would be to look at his bone profile and the calcium phosphate product. Um, so in his case, his uh, total calcium was 1.8 millimoles per litre um, with a phosphate of 1.6 millimoles per litre and, and chronic kidney disease you'd expect not only the hypercalcemia but also the hyperphosphatemia. But it's important to look at the albumin which was low in this case at 24 grams per litre so therefore his corrected calcium is normal in the face of hypoalbuminemia. Okay, okay. So how do we begin to approach management for a patient like this? So at the start it's important to do um, airway breathing circulation back to basics um, and to, to think about whether he needs any support. Um, in the assessment that we've done initially where I've described um, that he's intravascularly replete but he's got total body water overload, um, doing a venous blood gas is very important uh, to check his respiratory and metabolic status because he's got a low bicarbonate of 14 millimoles per litre. Um, and initially, I would be giving intravenous furosemide in this case to try and offload um, the fluid that he's got on board. Um, it would be helpful because he's tachypnea, obviously, to look at the full examination and obviously keeping an eye on the saturations and changes in the venous blood gas and performing a chest x-ray to see if there's any evidence of pulmonary edema on that. So looking at those blood results, looking at, at that sodium, the potassium and the urea and creatinine, which are obviously significantly deranged, what would you suggest would be the next step? How do we begin to correct those values? Yeah, so the in the case that we gave, the sodium level was 130 millimoles per litre, but it was in the face of hypoalbuminemia of 24 grams per litre. So I wouldn't be overly worried about the sodium value mm -hmm. itself because I okay. think there's total body water overload. And um, that potassium level of 7.2 millimoles per litre, the commonest reason is the fact you've got a hemolyzed sample. So just be sure okay. you've got a free flowing yeah. venous sample. But with the degree of renal dysfunction, hyperkalemia may be associated. And it would be really important um, at that case, in that case if confirmed is to start by trying to see whether it can be reduced. And the initial holding measures you would think about would be giving nebulized salbutamol. The frusamide that we've already given um, um, would be important in that case. Calcium gluconate uh, would be good for um, cardiac stabilization and putting on a 12 uh, lead ECG. Um, and so that just having looked to check that there's no changes. So that's the routine. Those are routine um, steps to take for a patient who would present like this with those values. Yes, I think okay. if the hyperkalemia is confirmed, you'd want to make sure that he was in a safe environment and that he either if he's deteriorating, then you're thinking of a pediatric intensive care unit. If he's relatively stable, then he could be managed in a nephrology ward in a high dependency unit setting if you're able to get on top of his medical management. Obviously, with time, you'd want to correct his, um, his acidosis. Um, but again, it depends. As you remember, his um, blood pressure was already elevated when he came in. So you're trying to give frusamide and, of course, giving bicarbonate. One is offsetting the other because one's giving sodium and one's taking it away. 
but the acute management of the fluid overload and the incipient pulmonary This is quite a complex patient um, that we've, we've just discussed. So who needs to be involved in this patient's care? As this patient is presenting in a district general hospital, the first thing, of course, is important that the full paediatric team are aware and that would, of course, involve informing the local consultant paediatrician that you have somebody who is sick in your accident emergency or your um, um, paediatric assessment unit. I think it would be very reasonable very quickly to have discussions um, with your local paediatric nephrology unit about this patient um, because of the incipient pulmonary edema, but also you'd be thinking about potentially involving the CATS team and so the, your local transport team and potentially paediatric intensive care unit or uh, your nephrology high dependency unit depending on response to initial treatment because he could deteriorate from the respiratory point of view and in addition we might be in the situation that he would need further intervention. So obviously this is quite a complex patient um, that we've, we've just discussed. So who needs to be involved in this patient's care? As this patient is presenting in a district general hospital, the first thing, of course, is important that the full paediatric team are aware and that would, of course, involve informing the local consultant paediatrician that you have somebody who is sick in your accident emergency or your um, um, paediatric assessment unit. I think it would be very reasonable very quickly to have discussions um, with your local paediatric nephrology unit about this patient um, because of the incipient pulmonary edema, but also paediatric intensive care unit or uh, your nephrology high dependency unit, depending on response to initial treatment, because he could deteriorate from the respiratory point of view. And in addition, we might be in the situation that he would need further intervention. It's important to involve your CATS, which is your Children Acute Transport Services, or your local transport team in getting advice for this patient because it depends on the initial management as he could deteriorate from the respiratory point of view requiring intubation and ventilation and somebody potentially who may require kidney replacement therapy either in the paediatric intensive care unit or in nephrology high dependency unit. Great, thank you. So that's been really useful to follow that case through. So I'll just move on to learning a little bit more about acute kidney injury. And let's start with what's the incidence of acute kidney injury in paediatrics? It's a very interesting subject and there's a lot of variation because it depends where you are and who you are and what group of patients you look after. So when we talk about the incidence of acute kidney injury, it very often depends on your denominator. And the reason that that's important is because you could have a patient um, who's in a unit uh, where you do cardiac intensive care. Um, and in that case, it really does depend on your number of operations that you're doing, how many patients that you've got, and if you include everybody. The other issue is actually your definition. So there now is a staging of acute kidney injury, but historically as well, people have used a rise in your plasma creatinine if it was known, or some people use actually acute kidney injury only being important if it requires kidney replacement therapy with peritoneal dialysis or hemodialysis. In addition, coming from the intensive care point of view, your outcome very often is, did the patient survive and did they survive off uh, kidney replacement therapy when they left the intensive care unit. And of course, we're more interested in those patients that are left with chronic kidney disease, which obviously is dependent on the length of time that you require 
kidney replacement therapy, either with CVDH, CVHD, CVHDF, all the uh, modalities you have in intensive care, hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis. But because we don't know from each individual unit what it is, of course, the mortality varies as well. So looking at the literature, it can be anywhere between 10 and 60% of children dying. And it very often will depend if you've got a neonatal unit and you include everybody who has hypoxic glycemic encephalopathy. Do you have a surgical unit where you include all of those patients as your baseline as well? Okay. So if we go on to now the causes of acute kidney injury, how might you approach that classification? Well, I think it's very important to consider acute kidney injury as either being due to pre-renal causes, those with intrinsic uh, renal disease, and those post-renal, which is usually obstructive causes. So if we pick on the pre-renal causes, what are the common causes we might see in children, in young adults? Well, the commonest, of course, is uh, those children that have decreased true intravascular volume, which very often is due to an acute viral gastroenteritis. And interestingly, internationally, this is reduced with the advent of the rotavirus uh, vaccination programme, which has reduced the incidence of acute kidney injury from viral gastroenteritis with dehydration and gastrointestinal losses. Of course, we also see it in third space losses of any kind, including sepsis, nephrotic syndrome, and patients who have salt wasting or diabetes insipidus. And again, one of the big incidences of patients that have evidence of circulatory failure and thinking of those with cardiac failure and, of course, more severe examples of pericarditis and cardiac tamponade. When we talk about intrinsic renal disease, of course, you may have a patient who starts off with a viral gastroenteritis. They get a pre-renal acute kidney injury, but they then end up getting an acute tubular necrosis with ischemia and hypoxic injury. It may also be drug-induced or toxin-mediated. We obviously have many patients that present with a glomerulonephritis, and in one of the other podcasts, we will talk about uh, nephritic syndrome as well as nephrotic syndrome. But post-infectious glomerulonephritis, uh, membranoproliferative, or what's called mesangiocapillary glomerulonephritis, or the C3 glomerulopathies, uh, can cause inflammation in the kidneys and give you an intrinsic acute kidney injury. Other glomerulonephritides, including lupus nephritis and vasculitis, are, of course, important uh, etiology. We sometimes see drug-induced or idiopathic interstitial nephritis, and uh, the incidence of tumor lysis syndrome with the advent of respiricase in oncology patients has actually reduced over the years due to these, um, this drug now being available. We also see, of course, still cases of acute kidney injury due to uh, STEC um, hemolytic uremic syndrome, so diarrhea-associated hemolytic uremic syndrome, as well as atypical HUS. Um, patients who end up getting cortical necrosis or thrombosis or any infection, thinking of sepsis and pyelonephritis. And then, of course, when we're talking about uh, obstructive and post-renal, we're thinking of potentially a urethral obstruction, so posterior urethral valves presenting in a young uh, male. Uh, you may have bilateral ureteric obstruction, or you may have a solitary kidney, which is undiagnosed and obstructed, uh, for example, due to uh, kidney stones, nephrolithiasis. So in this podcast so far, we've discussed a case and talked about the presentation, diagnosis and management. And we've now looked at the incidence and prognosis of acute kidney injury alongside some of the causes and how to classify them. Is there anything else you think is useful at this stage to know about acute kidney injury? Well, I think um, 
the important aspect in most patients uh, where they're not in incipient pulmonary edema is actually making the assumption, as long as they're not fluid overloaded, that they're intravascularly dry, uh, prolonged capillary refill time, cool peripheries would be to give fluid boluses. And the importance of uh, giving crystalloid or colloid is to basically try and see whether you can kickstart the kidneys to start working again. And that may or may not require the addition of frusamide as indicated by the clinical state of hydration and urine output. So the important thing is, is to have accurate fluid balance, look at the input and output very, very closely, do twice daily weights on the patients and do regular observation. What is the blood pressure? Is it abnormal? Is it changing with time? What's happening with the uh, core peripheral temperature uh, gradient? And the ongoing fluid management is you're giving fluid boluses, but then actually if you're in the state that you're not producing any urine, you're not responding to frusamide, then you're then going to cut back on the amount of fluid that you give, which may be to insensible losses, which is 400 mils per meter squared per day, plus 100% of the urine output if they're uvolemic or restricting to a half or three quarters of the urine output if they're overloaded. Always remembering that in, if they're in the polyuric recovery phase, you may have to replace the urine output with insensible losses, but then go to a fluid target, but closely monitoring what's happening to the patient clinically. So I think this, as a, as a trainee, this brings a question to mind. So this patient that we discussed had quite severe um, derangement in the renal function and was also overloaded. So how do you then manage the fluid having to give frusamide when you've got derangement in renal function? Because that can be something that can be quite difficult to manage um, in an acute setting. Yes, no, I agree that you need to look at each individual patient uh, differently and go back and, as I said, clinically see how things are in your uh, patient. So are they warm and well perfused? Were they cool when they started? Look and see if they're dehydrated by features of tachycardia, cool peripheries, prolonged capillary refill time, dry mucous membranes, sunken eyes, um, uh, sunken fontanelle in uh, neonate and then initially giving fluid to those patients. If they're clinically uvolemic and not in pulmonary edema, I'd still give them a fluid challenge. And APLS teaching is very often give 20 mils per kilogram. We might even start giving 5 mils per kilogram and then giving future aliquots very quickly, seeing how they're responding over time. And then when you've, for example, given 20 mils per kilogram, um, consider giving frusamide up to... Five milligrams per kilogram if there's no urine output response. So even with deranged renal function, you can still give frusamide if clinically indicated? Yes. Okay. Very often they may not respond to the smaller doses of half a milligram to one milligram per kilogram. Uh, generally, most guidance is you can give four to five milligrams per kilogram. I would generally give two milligram per kilogram and see the response and then give a future one because you don't want to have any autotoxicity as a result of the therapy. Great. Thank you very much. That's been a really useful podcast on acute kidney injury. Stay tuned for our other podcasts around renal failure and renal diseases. Thank you for listening to Gosh Pods. If you would like more information on courses and educational opportunities offered by Gosh Learning Academy, please visit the website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy or follow us on Twitter at Gosh Learn Academy.